Hey, a quick reminder that all our subscribers can get 15% off their tickets to Epic Web Free Conference. And this conference is special because just like this podcast, it's focused exclusively on building and growing web free products. So among conference speakers are people who are responsible for building and growing products at Poap, MakerDAO, Polygon, MetaMask, Decentraland, Gnosis, and many, many more. The event will take place on the 9th of June in Lisbon, and the agenda is already out. You can check it at epicwebfree.com. If you decide to buy a ticket, just remember to type Webfree talks code during the checkout to get 15% off. So we are live and our today's guest is Tim Beckman, who's co-founder and CEO of MailChain. And MailChain is basically Webfree email. In other words, just like on Gmail or Hotmail or Outlook, you have your inbox and you can send your emails. But the difference is that first of all, it's totally owned by you, like it's tied to your wallet. So you can send email from wallet. I could send my email from macbutkowski.eth to timbeckman.eth and he will receive that email if he uses MailChain. And also they are end-to-end encrypted. So these are two very important elements of uh, this new email architecture for Web3. But I guess there's much more than that. So. Uh, Team, like I know that Mailchimp has an interesting story that it started few years ago. Uh, so could you, you know, walk us through the origins of uh, Mailchimp? Absolutely, Mac. Thank you very much for having me here. Um, so in 2018, I was uh, at DevCon in Prague, um, and at the time, I was working for AWS in the startups team. Um, I was there to talk to startups and learn what it was that AWS could do to help them with their infrastructure. And one of the things that I noticed was people were sending assets on chain. And obviously you had this primitive that was capable of supporting cryptocurrencies, uh, but it wasn't possible to send messages between people on chain. And this seemed like something that was pretty obvious and should have been done. So initially, um, I started to flesh this out, and the idea actually woke me up in the middle of the night, and it was driving me a little bit crazy because it seemed like there were so many smart people working on this, um, but people hadn't paid attention to the communication element of what was happening uh, on chain. So um, I went back and uh, talked to Rob DeFeo, who is uh, now my CTO co-founder, um, and we worked extremely well together. We worked on many projects inside of Amazon. We did a bunch of side projects to explore new technologies outside. And what we really begun to understand as we looked at the messaging and communication space was, first of all, it was incredibly complex. The encryption side of things is quite hard. Um, and then when we looked at the addressing, uh, multiple blockchain protocols existing, how do you start to tackle something this big? And so we parked the idea for a while and didn't really think much of it until about March 2019. And then we thought, we'll try a little proof of concept on something just to understand more about encrypted messaging. Um, so that's where we first started developing an open source side project that was 
a version of MailChain, but it was it's long since been deprecated, and we no longer use that today. Um, that was a pretty interesting use of Ethereum, which was where we built the first implementation. Um, a lot of developers hadn't seen the uh, data field being used to carry messages. Um, now it seems quite a common way for people to communicate in clear text when things go wrong. Um, but at the time, people were just using it for contract calls. And um, so we started to include, initially, the first message that went on chain was an entire message encrypted inside that field. And Ethereum was pretty cheap back then, so um, it cost cents. Uh, then we decided that actually that didn't scale particularly well for a couple of reasons. We decided to look into um, like whether or not you'd want all of your messages put on chain. And we decided that's probably not the best idea. And then we went and um, looked at the size of what was going on chain. And obviously, we wanted to control what was being put there. So we put in uh, a little bit of work to understand, could we just store pointers to messages that were stored elsewhere? And that's really the origin of where we started looking at this space. And over the next couple of years, we played around with different implementations on uh, Algorand and Substrates. We were, I think we were the first uh, production DAP over on Edgeware. And obviously, there was a lot of interest in 2020, 2021. The use cases were amplified with all the new users coming into the space. And then around the end of 2021, uh, we started to consider, is this something that's much bigger? And should we rebuild the protocol because it didn't scale as well as we needed it to and go off and produce this like specific communications protocol rather than use general purpose blockchains. So yeah, so that's what we uh, did. <laughs> yeah, uh, so Tim, like, I'm wondering, like, because you said that it didn't scale well enough, so you kind of uh, rebuild it, that you didn't want to put messages on chain. So like, why? Why you you, you decided that you know, messaging on chain is not a good idea because I'm asking since many people who are into blockchain, they want to put everything on chain, which is typically not a good idea. So maybe it will be a cautionary tale from your side why you shouldn't do it. Yeah, I think so. Obviously, you do have people um, who still believe that. And I think one of the things that I've seen, I've talked to hundreds, if not over a thousand startups in the space um, about what's right to deploy on chain and the reasons behind it. If you want to be able to prove something exists over the course of time, then it's great to be able to point to that. But perhaps that's not ideal, especially in a messaging context. Like, would you be comfortable in 30 years if someone took your email inbox and just made it available to people? It doesn't matter whether you've been up to no good. You just probably don't want that out there because it's your private thoughts. and in the same way that encryption changes over time and the algorithms we use today uh, are very different from the algorithms that first came out around encryption. So we believe that in order to future-proof people's communications, it's important that whilst messages can be transmitted at a point in time using the state-of-the-art encryption, um, they should also be able to be removed so that people's messages aren't later on decrypted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes perfect sense. Uh, so how MailChain works today? Like, 
you know, could you walk us through the more technical process that's going on under the hood? Yeah, definitely. And I think one thing I'd like to point out is that there are two states that we've got the current state of where we're at today that we're extremely comfortable with the way it's built. But more importantly, there's a future state where we've made everything as decentralized as possible in order for people to run this should MailChain ever go away as a company and in spirit of true self-sovereignty. Um, so today's state is a balance of what enables us to move pretty quickly, um, but also guarantee that we can give the users the security and privacy that we've set out to do. So without further ado, to go into how the protocol works, um, let's imagine that I'm sending a message to you, Mac. So I have your uh, ENS name, and I head into MailChain's uh, web inbox. I pull that up, and I compose a message to you. So I enter in uh, your, what is your ENS name, if you're happy to reveal that? It's macbutkowski.if, so my name and surname. Cool. Um, so I pop that into the two field, and in the background, MailChain will go off and query the registry and look for your address. Um, it will resolve that back to your Ethereum address, and it will get a messaging key that is created when you register your ENS name or your wallet into MailChain. Now, using that messaging key, it's nothing to do with the uh, spending keys that you have. So there's no way that you can go off and sign transactions that spend any of your money, move any of your assets. You're in a safe place where you can sign and encrypt messages. And what happens is in my inbox, I will encrypt the message all under the hood. Um, and then that will be sent off to be stored in the mail chain distributed storage. This is where I think of future states are important because that storage we will eventually allow people to come along and add their own um, and for storage providers to exist where people can choose where they want to have that hosted. So now we have an encrypted message stored and a URL gets returned to the client. That's my browser. My browser then encrypts that again um, using the messaging key. And that is then included in what we call a delivery request. That delivery request then gets sent through our transport layer. And that is sitting there waiting. Now, we have a time to live on messages. So all messages are guaranteed uh, with 90 days time to live. Um, they're often available longer because we don't have a current issue of having to purge that. Um, and it will be possible for people to change the TTL in future. So this message is there. And then you come along and you log into your mail chain inbox. When you do that, you'll go off and query for any messages that may be there lying and waiting for you. Very similar to what happened with POP3 back in the early email protocols. Um, you, the messages that are waiting there are obfuscated. So only you can tell that you've got messages there. So you will decrypt the metadata, you will decrypt where the storage is located, and then you'll go off and retrieve that message. Once you've retrieved that message, it will decrypt it and then it will store it in your inbox, removing the message from the protocol so that it's not out there in a public space. Um, and then you will have that in your mailbox. Okay, like thanks Tim for walking us through that because uh, it's very easy to 
see okay like email like how complicated can it be you just send a message and, you know yeah the other person receives that like on the surface it looks super simple because we are accustomed to using email and it seems like a very basic thing to do but as we can see from your description there are many things happening there so uh, i'm wondering uh you know what were the first versions of mailchain because you know you you described a pretty advanced version the one that you have today but i'm wondering like how have your mvp your proof of concept that you mentioned look like what features did you have back then oh it it was a real pain to get started with um so the first version we built we we wanted to guarantee that people could go in and look at every part of the code. And we wanted to make it so secure that it just became really difficult for people to install. So we had a command line client, um, but back then actually we were using, um, we'd, because we looked at how we could get people's public keys and encrypt data with that, we were using the signing method that's now deprecated or uh, not advised because it's not provably secure. Um, recently, MetaMask deprecated their implementation of that. Um, so this implementation was clunky. Um, you would have to run your own, um, or you could pull up the website, but it would still talk to your local client on your desktop. So there was no way this thing would actually become adopted by anyone who couldn't go in and install mm -hmm. and tinker with the command line. Um, so that part we certainly weren't proud of, but there were still some folks using it, um, which gave us a pretty clear signal. And then we did, uh, we had a Gitcoin bounty going and there was a lot of signal coming through that, that people wanted more of this and wanted it developed. And then from time to time, we would have people reach out directly. And um, certainly when you look at all of the Web3 domains and identity space, people got very excited when they can start to communicate and adopt these identities more than just having a name when you log in for something familiar, but actually the utility behind the identities. Um, and that's what drove us mm -hmm. in the direction to look at, let's think about solving the user communication problem first and foremost. Security is built in because mm -hmm. once we solve the encryption part and we actually have a way that anybody can send a message um, to any address because when you register your you register your wallet address with MailChain and you have this separate messaging key, that means that you don't have to worry about like this problem of the signing and encryption key coming from the same pair. Mm -hmm. So okay, that's... and you know, you, you... yeah, uh, and, and and team like you mentioned first users, and I wanted to ask about that because email is like the perfect example of a network effect product where you know you have to have people on both sides like if i use email but you don't then you know it's not very useful because you cannot get my messages and it goes both ways of course if i don't have and you have then it's not very useful either. So I'm wondering like how have you acquired first users the people who you know, probably had like five people to email <laughs> in, in the whole world back then. That's right. Um, it's, it's a very difficult problem to start with. And in many cases, email is like, it's the right solution. Um, but when you look at Web3 identities, there are so many reasons why people shouldn't attach an email address 
to their identities. Firstly, it's really complicated to manage many identities with the same email address. Um, and this is a problem that is going to become more and more apparent as people interact with different chains. They use different addresses for different purposes, which they absolutely should. Um, I don't think it's a good idea to use a single address for everything. Um, and then managing this becomes a problem if it's all tied back to one email and that's your sort of persona for logging into things. Um, so going back to your question about the first users and um, what what sort of brought people to use MailChain, um, again, it's the people who can use their identities in Web3. And they immediately saw that this is an important factor. This led us to NFT creators communicating with their collectors. And quite often you have um, NFT creators who have a collector who perhaps has a few of their pieces and they have no way to reach this person. Um, and MailChain established a mechanism that allows them to reach those folks on that address. Um, plus the fact that you can send a message to an address before they've registered with the protocol and that message will be held. Um, so you can send out to a group, tell people about things that are coming down the pipe. So if you're um, about to open up a mint, then you can let those folks know. Or if you've got real life events happening, you can still reach those people. And it was within the NFT community that we started to see progress on that side. Okay. And, and how you reached these people? Uh, have they just came across MailChain by accident? Or have you, you know, found them on some conference or a, a, any other space? Uh, so we go and talk to as many people as possible. Being um, like our entire team, we're on some socials. We love to go to real life events when we can do that. Obviously, the past couple of years held us back a bit on that side. But one of the things that is also quite prominent in the NFT community is secondary offers are a real pain. And there's quite a few people who have uh, talked about how they've either sent or received an NFT containing a message because they want to buy or sell have bought from them an NFT um, by someone else. So in that case, I would send you an NFT that says, please contact me here because I'm interested in talking to you about an NFT you own. And most of the time, well, I think maybe it worked for one or two of those at the very beginning, but now people get tons of spam. Um, and these are sort of worthless NFTs that get in the way on people's wallets. So I don't think they even see them now because platforms have introduce controls that if it's not a recognized collection, it will just discard it. Um, and so uh, like that part of the community, anyone who's sort of gone through the pains of that felt that MailChain was an obvious solution. And a lot of them found their way to us that way. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, you know, like uh, that reminds me of the conversation I had with Matt Galligan from XMTP. Uh, they are also solving web-free communications problem, but from a different perspective, because they go for instant messaging and notifications. So I, I'm wondering like how much different it is on the architecture level. Like, is it like, could you easily add instant messaging or XMTP? Could they easily add email or are these like totally different worlds and different architectures that you have to build? 
It's an interesting question. Um, so Rob and I had some conversations with Matt and Shane back in, uh, must have been July 2021. Um, and they were at very early stages exploring what their protocol would do. So my knowledge isn't totally fresh, but I've seen them popping up here and there. Um, and I've seen some clients have been built on their protocol. I believe they've gone after the DM space and mm-hmm. direct message space. And um, from our perspective, like the value for us has always been around email. And um, whilst you could probably put through any communication use case on MailChain, we went with email because when we look at the web today and we see that your inbox has become the thing that you use as you go through the internet, collecting the data that you need later on. So be it your travel plans, your receipts, your notifications from the tax man, from your utilities, all of that starts to come into your email inbox. Now, we've applied putting this communication into a messenger type format, and it doesn't work. Um, So social DMs are brilliant for real-time communication, and that covers everything from support, one-to-one, some group chats, um, gets a bit messy when you have too many people, but uh, I think the Web3 crowds manage it incredibly well in Telegram. But for us, we didn't think that uh, that was a use case that we wanted to prioritize. And we thought it was super important to go and solve the multi-chain communication problem in asynchronous communication. And one thing that hasn't been solved yet is end-to-end email encryption. And we can do that because we've built it in at the very bottom layer of the protocol. whereas the end-to-end encrypted email that exists today through things like PGP, you've still got to go and tinker with a lot of stuff at the application layer, and that makes it really hard to add on at the top. Hey, I got a message for you from our friends at OrangeDAO. If you don't yet know, OrangeDAO is a DAO built by founders who've gone through Y Combinator, and they focus on investing in and accelerating web-free ecosystem. So the message is that their fellowship applications are open. What's their fellowship? Well, if you're a builder that has an initial idea, but feels like, you know, you need money or some mentoring to really pull it off, then this fellowship might be something for you. The way it works is they give you 25K and for 10 weeks, you get mastermind meetings, dinners, and get tactical support from Orange DAO members and partners. So... If you feel like it might be something for you and you want to turn your initial idea to full-time project, then go to fellowship.orangedow.xyz and see whether it's something for you. The application's deadline is 30th of June, so there's still plenty of time, but I highly advise you to not wait till the end because it might get pretty crowded. So thanks a lot, and we are returning to the episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, this is interesting that you say that because I never thought about it, that basically email, which was very social app when we didn't have DMs, like people were, you know, emailing with their wives, you know, with their friends and so on. But now basically all the social communications went to instant messaging through you know WhatsApp, Messenger, Twitter, Telegram, and so on, and so forth. But like 
when I think about email, like it seems more practical in a sense that like I do things that, you know, my bank information, my travel information, as you said, like flights, tickets and things that are more like, you know, formal in a sense of things that I have to do very often. Uh, and yeah, this is like a totally different use case now when I think about it. Yeah. And we've seen, we've seen that a lot. Um, we don't see many people using MailChain for social communication and we're okay with that. I don't use it for social communication. Um, I do use it for a lot of the work communication and for anyone to be able to reach me on that as a channel. And that enables me to stay with my ENS name. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, it's like purpose built to allow people to have a similar thing to what they've been brought up with in web two for that catch all place. Um, and I think just the, the valuable messages that you want and need to keep over time that you don't necessarily need to react to at that point in time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, you mentioned these, uh, multi-chain approach and, and 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 also integrations because like i can imagine that a product like mailchain in order to be successful you need to integrate with different blockchains but also with different identities like lens ens unstoppable domains and so on and so forth so i'm wondering you know because you have to do many of these integrations and i know that you've done a lot so far so I'm wondering, like, do you have any specific process for doing that at scale? Like, how do you choose the protocol to integrate with? And how do you actually, you know, conduct this integration? Yeah, good question. So when we go into a protocol, we look at uh, what components are available within that ecosystem. So the typical one that we really like is we go into a protocol that has lots of users lots of dApps, uh, a naming service that is clearly an official or at least significantly adopted one. Um, and then we start to look at the other components of like how technically feasible is this. But we always want to be user-led. So we look at, um, obviously, you look across the ecosystem, there are more Ethereum uh, implementations and dApps built on top of those. So that made sense as when we built the protocol that we released last September, that was where we went first port of call. We recently announced NIR and that is integrated and working. A similar thing, NIR, because of its account IDs, it has its naming system built into it. And um, well, so there are a few different technical uh, details that we had to implement. Um, we saw that there was some, there was good traction in there. There were some good projects, there's good community. And when we look at these, we're always making a long-term decision on, is this protocol likely to be around for the long-term? Are we ever gonna have to take it out? That's probably our worst fear, is if the protocol no longer exists or isn't used at all. Um, if it's not used at all, we can deal with that, but if it just doesn't work. And we're yet to see too many of those, but it is a consideration that we take forwards. And then in terms of the naming systems, because it's really nice when you have, like, let's say for uh, Ethereum, you have ENS, that's a no-brainer. But when you can add in communities that have perhaps not found the name that they wanted in ENS, but they went off and they found a lens handle that they really like, or they've become more attached to the use of, let's say, a decentralized social 
profile and that they want to bring that in. So again, we go back to the users. We think what's going to give them the best experience in Web3. And as the adoption of all of these apps continues to grow, then at least when they come and use other dApps, then you've kind of got this whole circle which provides people the functionality of their name and they can communicate and they can use MailChain to receive those communications. So uh, I, I, I can imagine that these partnerships are one way to acquire new users. So I, I'm wondering, you know, what are the other options? Uh, you know, how do acquire users as of 2023? Because I, I know how you did it in 2019, <laughs> but I guess it might have evolved a little bit since then. Um, we're... We're seeing some really interesting dynamics in the ecosystem right now. I think the users who are here today are genuinely here. They're not going to go away. Um, there are so many builders, and we resonate really well with builders because, one, they know how complicated it is to use addresses. Two, the communication side is either something that they've worked around and they have a solution for, but they, like, they've looked at that problem, so they get it. Um, or... It's something that users have asked for and they haven't managed to tackle in their applications just yet. Um, so we come with a solution. So quite often, the conversations we're having aren't just, hey, here's MailChain, go send some messages. It's more like, here's MailChain, how does it work? Okay, cool. Can I put this in my DAO? Can I use it in my DAO? Is this going to help the governance? All of these different areas and use cases start to surface. And right now, the people who are committed and Governance is probably a really good area to spend a moment on. Being able to communicate with people using the identities that you're using for governance, be able to talk to your delegates or delegatees and manage those communications where you can verify that that is the real sender, the person behind that address. That adds a whole different set of features that people can then go build on top of. So for us, it's really exciting because we're in the build stage not the crazy chaos stage of like overpeaked hype. And um, this is when we have the interesting conversations with projects. Mm -hmm. And and so when you decide to work with these projects, so let's say I have a dApp that I want to integrate with MailChain. I have traction, you know, everything works well. And I say, Tim, okay, let's talk. Like, how can I integrate with MailChain? Yeah. Um, so we really have two approaches that we've seen. And I think there are almost two ends of the spectrum are people that need help integrating things because they aren't as familiar with Web3 and sometimes just explaining how pieces fit together and that they can uphold the safety of what we've put in place. We help guide those integrations. And um, we're always happy to jump on calls with projects and make sure they've got the right approach. And it tends not to matter on the size because we learn so much from what people want to do through communication use cases. And then there's the self-serve folks who are obviously skilled, experienced, they come in, which I don't think you need to be particularly skilled or experienced to integrate our SDK. You drop it in and it's, it's a few lines of code. We, we also built in some of the email standards. So the same templates and the same like frameworks for email work for MailChain. So, It sits adjacent to any SMTP flow, and it's very easy for people to just drop into their application and start sending messages out. Okay. So, so you bet on uh, 
clear documentation for the self-serve folks and I guess more guided approach for the ones that are not uh, that experienced or, or they just want to, you know, uh, talk things through, I guess. Uh, so, um, Tim, like, I'm wondering about one thing because one of the most omnipresent problems since not even email but like since mail uh like snail mail uh, is spam and i know that you have a very uh, non-obvious approach to that uh in a sense like uh, at, at least per, per, per what i've read uh, so far about MailChain. so could you tell me like what's MailChain's philosophy regarding spam yes i'm very happy to um, so we come in at some different layers on our approach to spam. And one of the particular challenges that we have, because everything is end-to-end -end encrypted, we can't do what email providers do today, um, which is basically monitoring all the emails coming through and looking at a pattern of a sender to a bunch of recipients and what's the velocity of that, um, what's the content, how similar is it, we don't have any of those tools at our disposal. So we've had to kind of think about what can we do today? And again, it's something that will continue to improve in future. Um, and we're just about to release some features around this, which will enable people to control who they receive messages from. So that could be someone who uh, is part of one of the communities that they're part of. And that may be through something they've chosen through their identity. So, for example, it might be someone with another ENS name or a lens handle um, or even going further down into specific communities around ownership. Um, so that leverages the on-chain footprint. But you don't need to have an on-chain footprint to use MailChain. Um, you could go create a new address in your MetaMask that's never transacted. You could then import that uh, and register that with MailChain. Um, so there would be no way to like add the spam controls for the user in that case. So there's a couple of areas um, that we've made some really good progress on and should be production ready soon. One is client-side um, Bayesian content filtering so that we can establish what is, like based on user's preferences, um, what is likely to be spam or not. Another area that we're, well, that we have is being able to scan some of the URLs in messages on the client side for known malicious ones. That is very early stages in being effective. It's not necessarily something that will scale well, but we still want to uh, explore how viable it is because if you're able to stop people clicking a known malicious link, then you just save them something bad. Um, but how do you keep up to date with all of that? And that's a big challenge. There are companies doing that, that we're working with, um, but we still don't know if they can handle everything that's out there. So we want to make sure that we allow people to rely on us wherever we can. And then thirdly, another area that we've started to look at is uh, how can we start to use enclaves so people can basically choose to use an enclave that will then uh, process their messages still encrypted, still protected, um, but in a more traditional fashion. That's something that I'm pretty excited about because uh, enclave computing is, uh, I think, generally not used enough 
And I think both decentralized and centralized entities could start to use it a lot more so that um, they still have their compute operations on the kind of infrastructure that they need to run their businesses. Mm -hmm. But they and what's that? Uh, uh, what's Enclave computing? Because I've never heard this term, to be honest. Okay, so Enclave computing, um, you may have heard about it through some of the Intel SGX. So Enclave mm -hmm. computing is where you run an application in an environment that doesn't allow access to it and all of the computations inaccessible and there's a proof of the computations available to prove that that was not tampered with. So if you put the code out there, then the application runs it. You can basically run anything from uh, an anti-spam service to a web server, and people can start to use these for running their own decentralized services instead of having to host it at home or go and put it out there somewhere uh, unknown. Okay, so it kind of like resembles computing on my own PC or like mobile phone, but I, of course, don't do it offline. I do it online, but it's secured in a way that it's almost as safe as if I was doing that on my PC. In general, it should be safer because you don't know oh. what else is running on your PC uh, and can be looking at those workloads that are happening. So, so long as um, you trust the components that are put into that and obviously don't trust verify so those need to be verifiable um then it allows you like this secure trying to think of another word for enclave mm -hmm. rather than use that one um this secure place that you can go in and um run these applications okay uh yeah so you know we are talking about scalability uh and i really like this approach that you're mentioning that you know, you are still looking for this privacy-preserving options uh, that can be implemented on top of MailChain. So I'm wondering, you know, because like when you think about email, email is probably the second most popular internet product. Like the first one is World Wide Web, like browsing websites, I guess. But email has, I guess, like close to what, like 4 billion users, I guess, 3, 4 billion more or less. Yep. So this is an enormous scale, like enormous. So I'm wondering, you know, how do you want to prepare for that? Like, do you say, okay, like, let's develop thing for the next, I don't know, 100k million users and then just maybe rebuild everything when we get there? Or do you already think about laying foundations for this very, very big scale that one day you might get to? So you're right in terms of those numbers. We think there'll be 10 times the amount when you look at the number of identities that exist and communicate. So it will still be the same amount of people behind it, but I think there'll be at least 10x the amount of addresses as we start to see um, public-private keys used in uh, normal wallet apps that people use within anything from loyalty points through to uh, voting, health apps, um, banking, um, whatever it might be. So with this explosion of identities in mind, uh, we have a path that will take us through to the scalability end goal that we'll need to support this. 
Today, it would cost us an enormous amount of money in infrastructure because we're hosting most things ourselves. But the path for us to get to decentralization basically starts with storage. So the biggest challenge in all of this will be where do you store all of the world's messages? And for this, we need to get to parity with email because it does an incredible job of that. Uh, we need people to be able to bring their own storage and then they can store their messages as they've indicated with their messaging key next to that in the registry that where the destination is. And they can add in different layers of redundancy in there if they're an organization that needs to ensure that they've got uptime, et cetera. So beyond the storage, one of the challenges that we had when we were uh, working with general purpose blockchains, um, so um, Ethereum especially, we were competing with DeFi transactions, and there are only so many that can get put into a block at any one time. So we didn't want, uh, firstly, to compete with that. Um, so that's why we decided that we needed a separate protocol for all of this. And if we take a sharded approach to allow essentially clusters of users to be uh, messageable on different shards as those scale out, then it's very possible to scale um, as far as you need to go, really, because you throw up some new shards. It's all linked through the registry. And so long as the registries can support that, each time you're basically just adding a separate shard with uh, a few updates to the registry for different epochs, which is how we've structured this. Um, and that's the phase two of what we do after storage. So first we make the storage mm -hmm. available for people to do that. And then um, we put the transactions out in the sharded layer. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, you know, because right now you can just, as you said, cover all the costs in the future. Maybe it will be like bring your own storage. But, um, you know, how do you want to monetize? Because I, I can imagine that even if you you know, don't do storage, but just like maintain the protocol and you have like billion users, I guess it's still pretty costly to maintain that. So I'm wondering what are your plans to monetize in the future if you have any already? Yes, absolutely. So we went into this thinking that it needs to be sustainable from every standpoint. Um, and like thinking about the fee layer was one of the important pillars for building the protocol. So technically, Everything stands up. How do you support it so that um, someone's not out of pocket because then it won't be around for very long? So one of the things that we wanted to also reach parity with email was providing the day-to-day -day user free messaging. So today you get that with, you know, Gmail. Uh, is it still Hotmail? <laughs> uh, Microsoft Mail. Yeah, I think um, so. <laughs> So all of those, um, you know, you get your free messages. Um, they can then serve you up ads and other things like that. Um, but that's not a model that we wanted to support. Um, aside from the advertising side, we still believe that people should be able to own their own data and that nobody else should be able to read that under any circumstances. So we decided that we were going to introduce a public goods model that enabled people a quota of free messages um, for any given day. And right now we think that's about 30 messages. We haven't met many people that are sending more than that for their day to day that couldn't wait, um, or that they wouldn't be prepared to pay a micro fee for. So you've got this free, free tier. 
And that services all of the humans for their general communication purposes. Then you layer in what is an established business model, which is transactional email, where businesses pay. And in MailChain, there will be a fee for every message sent where anyone who's exceeded the free tier or is not a human user, so it could be an organization, will then just pay the normal fee. And that will subsidize the public good layer, which is about uh, 10% of the protocol's um, transport bandwidth. And then those fees go on to reward the folks that provide infrastructure as a provider and also provide um, software services and value-add-backed protocol. Mm -hmm. Okay, makes makes perfect sense. So, you know, I guess you are not there yet. I mean, like you don't monetize yet. So I'm wondering what other metrics do you follow? Because the most obvious metrics for a startup is revenue. Uh, for a protocol, it's more complicated. So I get, I'm wondering, you know, what metrics do you follow and are your, you know, North Star? Yeah, so for our North Star, um, we look at the number of integrations that we know about that are using us. And then also we look at the health of the protocol in line with that. Um, so if we have many users, how many registered addresses have we got in total? Now, one interesting thing that I haven't mentioned yet is if you have your account and you register 10 wallets under that, nobody can tell that those 10 wallets sit under one account. Um, only you can do that. So if there are 100 registered wallets and we have 100 accounts, that's one-to-one. -one. That's okay. Um, that's not quite where we want to be because we believe that people will have multiple wallets. Um, so we always want to see that trending up. Um, but we still can't link that back to individual users. and. We try to track as little as possible. So we don't have access to a great deal of metrics, um, just some high level kind of number of accounts created uh, and um, yeah, the number of wallets that have been registered. But aside from that, um, we don't go into details on that. And then looking at the mm. integration side of things, what kind of user bases should we be going and working with? Um, what are we hearing that resonates and go and work with the projects that are sort of tackling those challenges? And then ultimately, as you see the sort of critical mass of adoption start, you see it in little communities. Um, you'll see that sort of one DAO uses it and then people that overlap into another one, they start to use it. And these, they're not exactly metrics, but they're the clues. Um, that we can track because we know that people are from the different DAOs um, and we can start to measure how much coverage do we have within these ecosystems. Um, and that starts to get pretty interesting for us. And also for the users of MailChain, mm -hmm. um, if you're sending a lot of messages, if you're looking at retention as a challenge, whilst you may have, let's say, 20% of your users using MailChain today, and then you see that change over time because you've told people in your Discord server that, hey, we're sending out updates via MailChain because we know we can reach 100% of the people that use our dApps. Then you start to see that delta and you get just 25%, 30%. And as it starts to climb, then that's pretty rewarding for people in an ecosystem that doesn't have many retention mechanisms at their hand. Mm -hmm. So... You know, a team like you mentioned the ability to connect many wallets to one, like mail, uh, and this is uh, 
like on one hand, it kind of resembles like the old email client where I, for example, have different emails connected, email addresses connected to my Gmail. But the main difference is that Google knows that and they can read all these messages from all these different, well, in my case, maybe not identities, but like different parts of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in your case, the, the cool thing is that you can have in one place all these different parts of your life. And as I, I used MailChain, I created my account and I went for the whole uh, whole process. So like the thing is you can just choose you want to, you know, message from this ENS or from this lens or maybe the other ENS. So like whatever you connect, you, you can use it. So I'm wondering, you know, if at any point I would be able to connect either MailChain to my classic email or classic email to MailChain. So I can have like one inbox for everything. Is it technically feasible or... You know, uh, can you do it? Do you plan to do it? We would love to do it. Um, and I would love to be like open up my phone and in my mail client, I've got MailChimp there. Um, but there's a few things that need to happen along the way in order for us to guarantee that we're delivering end-to-end encrypted communication. Because at some point, if you're using the traditional email protocols, then someone's got to decrypt that message before it gets into that area. And we're not quite comfortable doing it um, because it's not our place to do that. We wanted to create a communication protocol that supplies privacy. Mm -hmm. Um, So going that way is a challenge, but that's not to say that someone else won't build a solution that does it. Coming into MailChain, this is an area that started to look at a little bit with verified credentials. And what if you could actually just leave your SMTP days behind and you could start using your Gmail, your Yahoo, your Hotmail, et cetera, inside of MailChain, because you have verified that you are the controller of that address. And we'd have to uh, ensure that over time you are continuing to be that person and you have control, especially over work addresses. Um, And we can always set policy around that that could be configured in registries. Um, But then what if you start to use MailChain for everything and that becomes the client? So again, there's quite a lot that we have to build to get to a state where that is possible. Um, But we're looking at both ways um, because going back to traditional email and using those rails is fraught with all of the challenges that we're trying to move away from in many ways. Um, So if you went and plumbed MailChain into your Gmail, then whatever they do with the data, I don't know, but it's there and it's decrypted and they can start to see which identities are linked if they're all coming into one place. Um, I think there's a convenience consideration there. Um, People definitely want to receive all their messages in one place. Um, So that's why it's important for us to solve that in one way or another. Um, But one of the things that we don't want to do is compromise user privacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, makes perfect sense because like... uh... Like I really get your point regarding this decryption because, like you, can, like you say, okay, we provide end-to-end encryption, and someone sends email to my ENS domain. I open it in my Gmail, and then it's like not really private. Uh, so you know, I, because we are speaking about the future in a sense. So I'm wondering, you know, imagine it's 
2030. It's like, you know, seven years from now, MailChain has increased its adoption significantly. There are like hundreds of millions of people using MailChain, maybe billions. So like, how does this mail communication look like? I think the world that we would like to see on top of MailChain is one with multiple inboxes, multiple providers um, building on top of the protocol. Um, and our job and focus is to maintain a core decentralized communication protocol because that's the thing that's most dear to us is making that something that everybody can come along and use. I think it should be an option for wherever humanity uses a Web3 identity or even a public-private key pair in an application that the communication rails flows through MailChain because it can handle the asynchronous messages so they don't even need to uh, instantly receive that message and manage it. It's there for when they go in to receive it. So it might be an archive in a year's time or it might be just a receipt that they need to get their expenses back from their car that just paid for its petrol with its built-in smart wallet, whatever that might look like. But we have the communication protocol that will support the rails for that, and that's where our focus will be. Then we have the people that potentially built incredible email businesses in the Web2 world who apply their solutions and thinking along the lines of anti-spam and archiving and um, the things that corporates need to guarantee uh, the security around their messages and the policy around their messages and compliance, um, those folks can come in. And as Web 2 meets Web 3, um, we start to see this marrying in the middle and people can manage MailChain in line with their existing email. Okay. So, Tim, like you've been already building that for five years, more or less. Uh, so... I'm wondering what has been the most surprising insight so far? You know, things that you assumed to be true, but turned out not to be true or things that you haven't assumed at all and just popped out during your, you know, market discovery phase. That's a really difficult question. Um, I think looking back, we've seen an evolution going from where there was Ethereum mainnet, and I'm going to focus more on the Ethereum ecosystem um, for the moment, the Ethereum mainnet and a few test nets, and that's what we were building into um, when we first started, to this explosion of different protocols. And I think users tend to get a little bit put off by having to manage multiple protocols, and yet it's still built into so many dApps. Um, on one side, you have dApps talking about uh, that they want to stay Web3 native and that you can sign in with your wallet, which we absolutely support. Uh, however, then they go and ask for an email to then try and solve their retention problem. And so there's a few things that have got a bit wonky along the way. And so I think it's quite easy to get those things back on track. Um, but long term, one of the things that it's not been surprising as such, but it's been reassuring, is that the people that are still here and still building throughout times like this when the market's a little bit tough. They're the ones who believe in the long-term viability of producing solutions for people that uh, do things the way they imagine them to be done. And that tends to be in a way that they think is right for a community or a group of users. And that's super rewarding to build into. And when you meet with those folks, I see it because I'm on a lot of calls to discuss integrations. 
um, like just the excitement of what's possible for people to build. And that's cool. Yeah, there's also something I love, the fact that it's like, you know, America in the, you know, 16th or 17th century, you just go there and there's like so much space that hasn't been, you know, inhabited. It's just like wild. You can build something. You don't know what's behind the corner. And it's so exciting to be able to explore that. Uh, so, <laughs> Tim, like, I I'm wondering, you know, if you were not building MailChain, what would you build? <sighs> Again, another good question. I think back to the times when I was at AWS and I was working with Rob, and we played around with so many different ideas. Um, and MailChain was the only thing that we thought was worth spending the time on because it's a challenge once solved, solves a huge issue of not only the increasing amount of identities that are being created, but also data privacy in communication. Like, I literally have no other focus in life apart from trying to solve this. There is nothing that's tempted me. Um, there's no challenge that I see is realistically big enough for me to even try and crack. And so for now, like, I'm monogamous. This is me on MailChain. Okay. That, that, that's really bullish on MailChain then because a uh, focused founding team is a very important part of the growth. Uh, so, T, like, if you could fix something about Web3, you have a magic wand or you find a genie in the bottle and he <laughs> said, okay, you have one wish about fixing one thing about Web3, what do you think? I think, so obviously, aside from communication being one thing, um, I think the complexity around managing keys and managing multiple identities is difficult for many users. Um, so when you log into a DAP and potentially you sign a piece of data and you don't know exactly what that is, um, there are standards that are coming. Some have been put in place to make a, do a better job of these login systems but it's still not there yet. People trying to remember where they logged into a DAP um, is very difficult to do. So if you do the right thing and you split out across a few wallets, then trying to remember which one did what is very hard. Um, like just this management piece is a bit of a mess and it doesn't encourage people to go off and do the right practices. And then they don't do the right practices and then something terrible happens and reading about another person who's been uh, taken advantage of or another hack where people have not even known they've had something approved. All of these things are pretty sad because they affect regular people who are just here to experiment and experience what is Web3. And I'd like those people to have a safer ride. Um, so that's the thing that I would like to see fixed, just better protection all around for people. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so, Tim... I got two last questions. First one is where people should go to learn more about MailChain. So if you're a developer, the best place to get started is in our docs. And that'll quickly give you some examples of what it looks like to throw in the SDK. And we've got some examples there of how to integrate with um, like Firebase or Passport.js. So you can use MailChain for authentication and um, 
react to events like Alchemy Notify and um, Tenderly, uh, then if you're not a developer and you just want to get started and use your ENS name to communicate, then head to app.mailchain.com. Um, and there you sign up for an account which gives you your own secret recovery phrase for your messaging account. Nothing to do with anything that spends money. And that is the thing that you use to then encrypt your data with. When you come back to MailChain, you can use the username and password you create at that point, which again is all self-sovereign, but it is your keyring for communication. Um, and so as you get started, you can add your wallets if you have multiple, and then you can use those for communication. And then as dApps start to support these, uh, like, ENS as your primary form of communication via MailChain, then you'll start to see more and more of the use cases and the digests coming through that way that we're seeing now. And for anything else, then uh, Tim at MailChain is a great place to reach me um, if you want to get in contact. Okay. So, Tim, like, thanks a lot. I got only last question that I always ask at the end uh, because it, it was a pleasure to talk with you to get you know, deeper into the whole mailing uh, protocol and, and all the trade-offs that are uh, being considered whenever you develop something in this space. So do you know any other builders like you that might be a good fit for the conversation that we had? I think to follow up on sort of keeping people safe, some of the people who've done some amazing work um, are the Spruce team. Um, and some of the work they've done signing with Ethereum and developing standards around that. Uh, so either Rocco or probably Sam over there. In terms of people who are doing other interesting things, cool founders with stories. I think Ellie over at Bello um, would have an interesting story to tell as they build up Bello, which is uh, almost a CRM for Web3 and enabling people who have communities to produce things like whitelists and manage their collectors and play into that NFT space. Yeah, those would be the first two that I would um, consider. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, Tim, like, thanks a lot once again. It was great talking with you. And whoever is listening, check out MailChain. It takes, like, three minutes or maybe even less to set up an account. Uh, and you can see, you know, look for your friends <laughs> who have already integrated their ENS names into MailChain and see whether they ca you can email them. Cool. Thanks so much, Matt, for having me. Okay. Thanks a lot.